This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Big Brown Eyes, and the author is Naomi Connor, and Naomi joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Naomi. Hi, Steve. Well, this is your first children's book. You're excited about it, Big Brown Eyes, and I'd have to say those illustrations of these beautiful children's faces with big eyes and, and an expressive, just fantastic. Tell us about why you wrote it. What motivated you? Well, I think uh, as far as my son, it was a little guilt trip thing. <laughs> he wasn't having a good day, and he wasn't aware that I was on my way to work. So it was kind of sad for us for those few minutes from the time that he realized to the time that I left. So you got an idea. Did you, tell him, did you start talking to him about his eyes and his ears and his nose? or I mean, how did that come about? Well, I didn't really do that until after I got from work. I more or less started thinking about it a little bit more. And that morning before he went to school, then we had a little talk about it. So he liked the story. He liked it more when it became illustrated. Oh, yes. He well, listened as I spoke about it. But, you know, with kids, uh, he could see it better. He could, you know, really see it then once it was um, illustrated. Sure, sure. Well... It is a big thing when a child loses his or her first tooth, isn't it? Well, I can almost remember mine. I can remember the finger-sucking thing. <laughs> it lasted a few years. Like I said, I can remember that. And, of course, the tooth fairy, we all make a big deal out of that. So teeth are very special, and children, you know, discover. They're starting to discover these uh, different parts of their body, and, and that's really what the focus of your book is on. Yes, it is. More or less like early child development. We need to know what we need to know. What age group would you say would really enjoy this book? Um, uh, as far as a learning tool, probably about four to seven or eight, but for those of us that remember it, I mean, grandparents, parents, I mean, we lost our teeth, we got them back, we kind of remember a lot of that. Well, of course, grandparents, especially, uh, who are, you know, I can relate since uh, I have that fun every once in a while to get to read to my grandkids, and uh, it's always a great experience, and your book will be just right there on the list. I mean, uh, you know, we can never have too many children's books. Now, the rhyme. I love it. Oh, and that's, well, to me, that's common. A lot of kids look at, you know, at a certain age. Uh, if there's a rhyme to it, they seem to remember it better. Well, exactly. And uh, of all ages, right, we all remember better with the rhyme. I mean, songs or a poem. So that that really adds a special touch to it. So congratulations. Thank you. Now we tell us about some of the other uh, important parts of the body that you're going to fa- uh, f- focus on. Really, it's just the what the face, right? Uh, the head. That, that that's pretty much it. Eyes, nose, mouth, and ears. 
look in that mirror, you got everything right there. And I guess that's because, you know, you're a background in the medical field, so all that's important to you every day, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So they're also, uh, as they're learning their facial features, they're also learning the importance. There's some things that are important, aren't there, that they have to do. Well, of course, and and I don't know about everybody else's child, but as far as brushing their teeth, they seem to be a little bit hesitant. I mean, if the toothpaste tastes pretty good, that might be something that keeps them uh, brushing a little bit longer, but sometimes that gets to be a chore. And as you write this, uh, your book is about little things that excite kids, something as simple as making faces and looking at yourself in the mirror. And that's kind of what your book is. As you turn the pages, it's like... Looking in the mirror. It's like looking in the mirror. And, of course, this small act, as you say, is discovering for the developing, is discovery for the developing mind. That's what it is, yeah. What was the most challenging part of writing and, and getting your book finished? Mm, not that I don't really feel that it was challenging, just to see if my kids would accept it, I guess. Because that was my one of my first focus. He had that bad day. Let's get a little something going on to see if he can have fun with this. And so when he got the book in his hands, uh, what did he think? Oh, I mostly saw big eyes and a smile. So that was exciting to you, obviously. Yes, it was. That was more or less my immediate acceptance or his acceptance of what I had done for him. That's the real test, isn't it? That was it. <laughs> so... Are you going to take us on any more journeys? Well, I have a few more ideas about some things uh, that I've kind of planned. I've put them to paper. I would like to uh, see what it would be like once it's illustrated. More kids, of course. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Anything else you'd like to share with us, Naomi, about big brown eyes? Hmm. I guess for the most part, just sort of remember... My name, because I plan on doing a few more things for the kids. Naomi Connor, the author of her book, this great children's book, Big Brown Eyes. Thank you, Naomi, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you. That was Naomi Connor. And how do we get your book? Oh, online, Author House is one source. Uh, Also, just a major um, major, uh, book uh, outlet. Thank you again, Naomi. Thank you. Naomi Connor, the author of her book, Big Brown Eyes. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guests teach us how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. 
It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Was sad, right? Cause he had a death kill mommy and dad, right? But that ain't the case, nope. it wasn't his fate, no. Nope. The walks never struggled to communicate. Y'all <laughs> wave your hands, look who's on. It's the code of man Keith, and he's number one. It's that Keith Wine Show on Tugginet.com, Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central. Every week, that Keith Wine Show will have guests that share their experiences, expertise, opinions, and personal lives with us to hopefully help us better understand others. The topics and guests will come from the American Sign Language community. For more on Keith Wine and the show, go to his website, KeithWanWANN.com. Listen with an open mind and willingness to learn and help with the cultural bridge. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Don't miss that Keith Wan Show. Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, In the Blink of an Eye, and the author, Sharon Schuyler. And Sharon joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Sharon. Hi, Steve. Well, good to have you with us to discuss this murder mystery thriller we're talking about trying to capture a serial killer you say this i think the book would appeal to people that enjoy suspense and solving puzzles in the blink of an eye there are clues set along the way with twists and turns and just as many detours as the reader thinks they can foresee the plot with each page they find new diversions so it sounds like you understand how to write an exciting mystery thriller. How did you come about doing this? I like to write how I like to, what I like to read. And if it keeps my attention, I figure it's going to keep other people's attention, you know, and keep turning the pages. So um, I don't like to be able to figure it out myself, you know, when I'm reading. If I figure it out in the first couple of pages, I never finish the book, so... I don't want the re- you know the people listening to be able to figure it out that fast either. So, kind of string them along. <laughs> and you stay very close to policemen, friends who kind of check out what you're doing, and also you do some research of making it realistic. Yes, I. Uh, a lot of my friends are police officers, and they've read my books and. They pretty much tell me I've, I've hit it dead on as far as clues and the procedures, and, and they're hooked. <laughs> well, and you say they that, like the characters. Well, then let's talk about the characters. You say these characters could easily be someone in your circle of friends. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. that I mean, that's well, what's scary. About, right, right. <laughs> but people that, you know, in the circle that that uh, associates, business associates, people that you would probably call friends. And here this this psycho killer, Riley, uh, he's a cop. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, he's a very he's very good at what he does. And that's uh, in not letting the other cops figure out what's going on he knows he knows what they're looking for so he's not going to leave anything for him to find 
So is he type? Is he that type of policeman that, in general, people respect him and think he is a good policeman? Um, I don't think uh, in the police circle. I don't think anybody thinks too much about him one way or the other. They don't have anything bad to say about him, but nobody really knows much about him. So he's just there. He kind of blends in. And I guess that's what he wants to do, doesn't he? Just blend in. Exactly. Um, I mean, if if he drew attention to himself, uh, it'd be a pretty short story. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, the story starts out with him uh, right zeroing in on a victim, and uh, it's brutal. Yeah. Um, it, it sometimes it's hard for me to to write that way because I don't I don't think that way. I mean, obviously, I'm not a killer, so um, and. But but it comes it comes across the way I want it to, which is to kind of shock your senses, like yikes, you know, how does somebody do that, you know? But it happens every day, everywhere. So um, that part of it, unfortunately, is probably pretty realistic. So is Riley the serial killer? Is does he have a set pattern, or is that the real uh, the? the mystery of your book that it just kind of always is going in a direct, different direction or is he zero in on certain types of victims? Um, no, he, he's a, uh, it's pretty random, which, uh, makes it hard for police officers to, uh, really work on, on the clues and such because there aren't any, I mean, it, it, it could be, he doesn't have a particular person that he's going after, um, you think he does, but then all of a sudden, yep, there's something else, and it kind of catches you off guard. It's still him, but um, it makes you think that he's capable of a lot more damage, you know, which, of course, he is. And the story starts out <laughs> at a place called the Velvet Lap in Las Vegas. Now, does, is this a real place? Um, actually... Yeah, <laughs> but it's not called the Velvet Lap. Um, I, my ex-sister-in-law used to be a, an exotic dancer many years ago, and, and um, I, I used to drive her and pick her up to work, you know, so I got to meet a lot of the people in in this particular establishment and uh, kind of got to see how they, you know, what they do, how they dance, you know, their interaction between people. So a lot of what I describe in the book, that's, that's really what does go on inside. You know, um, don't want to give away the name because they might not like that. <laughs> well, they may not yeah, like it, or maybe place. it would be good publicity for them. I don't know. Uh, no, we won't go there. Okay, all right, I'm with you. Okay, let's talk about some of the other characters. Uh, first of all, though, Riley, just is there anything you can tell us of why he does what he does? I mean, is he is there something awful that happened to him when he was a kid or somewhere along the way? Do we ever find out? No, um, actually, there's nothing. Uh, that happened to him, he just likes it. Um, he enjoys killing people <laughs> in strange surroundings. He has a knack for it. He's good at it. He's efficient. He's quick. Um, he knows how to cover up his trail, so there is no trail. And he's relatively sure that he's not going to get caught because he knows what the cops are looking for. 
So to him, it's fun. You know, I can do this and get away with it, and they're not going to catch me. Now, there are three <laughs> lifelong friends in the book that are key characters. First of all, let's tell, uh, tell us about Zach. Zach Harmon, he's, um, well, all of them are in their 30s. They've grown up together in Las Vegas, and uh, Zach is a homicide detective. He is the single parent of a, a, a very cute little girl. He, he's a widow. Is it widow or widower? He, he lost his wife. <laughs> um, has a rough time of it. You know, it, it, it wasn't anything that, it wasn't like his wife was sick or anything. It was a, uh, an accident that claimed her life, and uh, he's left to kind of pick up the pieces. So he's kind of angry at the world but uh, for his loss, but tries to keep everything in perspective and do his job, which at times becomes really hard. Um, and then there's Cooper, which uh, Cooper Scott is uh, his friend. It's a vice detective. And, in fact, he is the person that's investigating the Velvet Lap and draws Zach into it for, you know, an opinion because they're so stuck. And then there's uh, Eric Manson that's uh, the firefighter. He's the third link in the chain. And um, he, he's just uh, the balancing person of the three of them. And you say one of the key themes, one of the key themes uh, in this friendship is there is nothing you won't do for a true friend. Yeah, um, that's true. Um, I I I feel that way. Uh, I I I have a few very very close friends that there's absolutely nothing I wouldn't do. I mean, um, I would do whatever I could whether I agreed with the reasonings behind why they need any help, I just would. And that's how they are. It doesn't matter if they're right or wrong, if they need the help. They're, one or all of them will be there for the other. Well, is there a, a, a scene, event, or something you can tell us that will kind of just bring us into the story, bring the story alive, uh, that will uh, just help us understand something about these characters or about Riley or just something that you'd like to share with us? Well, here, I'll give you an example. You know, Riley's doing his thing, and uh, um, Cooper is stumped, and uh, just there's, no, there's nothing to go on. There's no evidence. There's, there's nothing left behind. So he gets Zach to come in and give his opinion of it and take him down to the Velvet Lap to kind of observe it firsthand. And... Um, of course, Riley is well-known, not so much well-known, but he is also, he, he's at the Velvet lap, lap often enough, you know, and he's aware when they're there. And to throw them off the case, he actually frames Cooper Scott in a murder that he does and gets, pretty much gets away with it. So poor Cooper Scott becomes one of Riley's victims. Well, that's a lot, that, that sounds like quite a twist and turn, that's for sure. And, and that must be very challenging, uh, trying to keep the reader guessing. How do you do that? How do you uh, put together this kind of storylines and think of, you know, these twists and turns that uh, keep us riveted? Uh, I don't know. I think I'm just lucky that I have the, the, the ability to do it. When I start writing... Um, I always start, I mean, I'll actually write a couple of chapters just to get my character so I don't forget them, you know, um, get the, the basis of the story that I want to 
bring out. And then, you know, I mean, I don't write anything down or anything like that, you know, like, you know, character one, character two, I don't do that. Um, and then I just start writing. Uh, my editor, um, who's one of my best friends, he'd say, just, just write it, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out later as far as piecing it together if it doesn't fit, you know, and uh, it's pretty easy for me to write. I, I enjoy it so much that it's, it's how I relax. You know, after a real stressful day at work or just whatever, you know, I I love to sit down and write. Uh, I can write longhand or even on the computer, whichever way. I just I got to get the story out, you know, and um, it falls into it falls into place for me. You know, um, I I don't I don't know that I do anything specific to help that along. It just seems like it's there. How many murders does Riley commit? Uh, in this story, <laughs> let's see, uh, one, two, three, four, I believe. Might be five. <laughs> four or five. <laughs> and then, is there one along the way that finally Cooper starts to see something, or is it just a whole different twist that uh, finally gives the, uh, the, kind of like when we say the lights come on? Well... Unfortunately for Cooper, he, Riley does a good job, you know, of uh, setting him up that uh, they actually arrest Cooper for the murder. Um, so Cooper is in jail. Um, there's not a whole lot that he can do, which is where Zach enlists his buddies and everybody because Cooper's so well known and liked, you know, everybody wants to help him out. You know, nobody thinks he did this. So, um, Cooper is in jail hoping that somebody's not so much hoping that's not right he he's not hoping he he actually doesn't remember so he doesn't know that if he did it or not um so it's up to Zach and his his buddies to uh either prove that he did it or prove that he didn't now this is the first of 3 3 se- you got two sequels to this story and mm-hmm. you've even started a fourth one right so how do they continue on? So this is it. Tell us a little bit how this continues on. If we read the first one, we're just going to have to get the second and the third and the fourth. Right. Um, well, each one, you know, in this particular, in the blink of an eye, Cooper is the main focus. Uh, each one of them, the friends sort of have a, a, a main role. The next one, um, Zach is the main person. Um, and the third one, Eric, the firefighter, he's, he's the, the main character. I mean, they're all in it, but the focus will center around each one of those. Uh, what happens that makes you want to figure out what happens to read the next one is that uh, basically Riley gets away. Not totally forgotten. I mean, he does return. <laughs> so Riley just keeps killing in, in every book. Um, well... Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't want to say that Riley is even in the next book, um, but he's definitely in the third one. You know, he, he just hasn't been he hasn't been captured. Right. Um, All he, right. He got away with he got away with the murders. I mean, at the end of Blink of an Eye, um, they know you know who did it, which is obviously Riley, and of course Riley is not his real name. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, you know, you, you definitely will want to read the next one to see where, it, where it's going to go. 
I'm getting ready to read it myself. Uh, I reread Blink of an Eye over the weekend just to get back in the swing of it and uh, got so hooked in involved with the story that I didn't do anything else Sunday or Monday. So, <laughs> Well, Sharon, tell I us how to get it. your book. I really do like my characters. They sound very I, intriguing, that's for sure. Tell us how to get your book. Um, right now, you can get it anywhere online. It's not in the stores yet. The marketing and advertising campaign is supposed to kick off January 3rd, uh, which hopefully will then put it in the stores. But you can get it on you know, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. You can uh, go to Author House and buy it directly from the publisher. You can also get it at my website, which is www.SharonSkyler.com. Um, there's links to all of the places you can pick it up. Um, and I, I hope everybody enjoys it. I know they will. <laughs> well, thanks, Sharon. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate that. That was Sharon Schuyler, the author of her book, In the Blink of an Eye, the first of several in a series with these murder mysteries. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. People think I've made it. I'm popular. I seem happy all the time. I have great clothes and I'm involved in everything. But I have questions, doubts, and fears, just like every other teenager. That's why I'm glad for Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. Join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. The choices we have to make that can alter the course of our lives. Life is too much pressure if we try to go it alone. I tune in to Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell every week to get reminded that I'm not alone. Nicole O'Dell is an expert on what happens in the lives of teenagers. Join her as she deals with topics like peer pressure, purity, drugs, alcohol, and many other things that might come up along the way. She writes books and speaks to people all over the place, but she says her favorite moments are when she can pull up a chair and chat with teens about what's important to us. For more information on Nicole and her books, go to NicoleO'Dell.com. Then join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet.com. Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Moral Dilemma, and the author, Diamond Fothgard, and Diamond joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Diamond. Hello. Well, first of all, I want to read a couple of things you've written about your book. You say this, this is a romance where two of totally opposing views on sex have to reconcile their differences as they are so well matched in all other ways. You also say, 
You hope this book would appeal to older people who enjoy sex and have so little opportunity to excel at other recreations. I find that statement... <laughs> I don't know how I find that statement. You see, I'm, I'm this old conventional, traditional guy, so you'll have to help me here, Diamond. So you also say, anyone who finds recreations limited by the advance of old age, anyone who wish to enjoy special relationships with others without undue expense or difficulties. Well, it certainly is a different theme. What prompted you and motivated you to uh, write this book? The motivation really was the general attitude uh, prevalent uh, towards sex. And um, the the big problem is that people uh, who come from a very orthodox and very traditional stance either tend to regard sex as a necessary evil or as a sacrament which must only be worshipped under certain circumstances. Well, I think this is where the whole thing went wrong because I think, um, and particularly for older people, uh, recreational sex, sex is divided into two. Alex Comfort first pointed this out. You've got procreational sex, which is for procreation, and is all over and done with after the family's over. And then you've got um, recreational sex, which is enjoyed by everybody from 15 to to 100, you know. It's, um, uh, and it is just a recreation. It's nothing more or less. Some people like it, some people don't. And it's just like um, playing golf or playing music or art or that sort of thing. It's, it has its limits. And uh, I think this is where it's important to realize that if you treat sex properly, then you don't get all these problems that you're getting today with divorce and increasing and single-parent families and abortion and all this sort of nonsense, which really is the product of the traditional stance and the attitude of religions in general. Because don't forget, all religions seem to treat sex in the same sort of peculiar way. Now, your professional background, tell us about that. Well, I'm, basically, I'm a family doctor. I, that's what I was trained for. I, I did medicine just after the war, and uh, I um, studied medicine, and I went into general practice very early. So I've been in general practice all oh, about 55 years, something like that. And uh, I've met all and sundry, and it's because I've met people with problems in sex. And uh, it, it, it was um, uh, pointed out to me that, you know, uh, th- this is not peculiar to my practice. This, uh, this is a, ge- a general thing that people have this problem. So uh, I, um, uh, first of all, I was very uh, strict and orthodox myself. But uh, I'm afraid life has led me into this path, uh, which is um, uh, completely different and uh, treats sex in a completely different way. 
And this is what the book's all about, because the girl is brought up in the family where they were very advanced thinking. They were very forward thinking, and uh, they, they have morals, moral, a moral code which is quite different to the traditional moral code, which the poor fellow was brought up in. And he, um, so they have a big problem between the two of them because he wants her to change to his ways and she wants him to change to her ways. And this is where the whole problem lies, you know. Well, we want That's to point out We want to point out that this is not a how-to book <laughs> or a oh, no, no. or a Definitely textbook in, a textbook no. into psychology. This is no. a story. You have written a very in-depth character story. Uh, with Bill and Elizabeth, the main characters, and you, you, it, it, you set it up so you really make them real, you make them one of us, and we can feel their feelings. Yes, I hope so. Well, tell yes, us a little I, bit more about Bill. Now, Bill is, uh, as you pointed out, he's uh, very conventional and traditional in his attitude about sex. But tell us about his, uh, you know, what kind of upbringing, where he comes from uh, financially, well, his status. He was the second son of an earl, and uh, it, this doesn't mean an awful lot in Britain now. And it, it did in the 50s. It was much more important. But um, and it was in the 50s that this all took place, you know. Uh, this is a, a partly historical, I suppose you'd say, uh, because, because it's uh, 50, 50 years ago now. But on the other hand, um, no, Bill was brought up by uh, um, uh, parents. His father, his father was... Um, an excellent businessman, but a rather profligate sort of fellow, but who married a very strict, uh, low church um, lady, you know, who uh, was very Protestant, very much party line, you know, and she was she brought him up to. to um, so sex was something you just didn't talk about, you know. And I can remember, because I was brought up like that myself. I mean, there were three things you never mentioned at the at the meal table. Sex, religion, and politics, you know. And uh, it was in that order. And uh, by goodness, you know, when you were young, if you uh, transgressed, uh, then you regretted it uh, because you were punished. So, you know, I can understand Bill's point of view very, very well because I was brought up that way uh, myself. And uh, I, that's, that's how I patterned the whole thing. And he, uh, as I say, he has a very orthodox background. He was a war hero he, in, in everybody else's mind but his own. He was, um, he, he was always sort of... Um, uh, a little bit diffident and a little bit introverted, you know, not not the sort that you um, would um, think would go around shouting about his um, morals, for instance. He kept quiet about them. Uh, that was something you didn't talk about. Whereas uh, he meets this girl who, in every other respect, I mean, she's brilliant musically, and he is too, and they both enjoy the same sort of art, the same sort of literature, this sort of thing, you know. But they have this big problem that they have a totally different attitude to sex. And that, that's, that's what the whole dilemma is about. Now, she is one of four girls. 
And uh, at first, uh, is it Bill that's uh, attracted to one of her sisters? Well, yes, because she, <laughs> because the, the the one that wants him, the one that um, and finishes up with him, of course, uh, she, she is a little bit crazy. She's not she's not a perfect being uh, by a long chalk, and she goes a very strange way about trying to get Bill's attention and that sort of thing. You know, he, she's she's um, an interesting character, I think. Um, but um, she's still, as I say, she's still got her imperfections. And so he is first attracted by her youngest sister, who is uh, very much like Bill, very much uh, introverted and very, very quiet and very uh, uh, keeps to herself, you know, that sort of thing. But, uh, of course, this, this doesn't do. You know, it's a funny thing about life, but opposites attract each other. Uh, I know oh, dozens of cases where you have marriages between introverts and extroverts. You know, they uh, well, one is all um, is all extroverted and uh, all the goods on the front table. The other one is all sort of uh, very uh, quiet and uh, diffident. And uh, it seems that they attract each other and. I know many couples that have had very happy marriages and uh, have um, been totally opposite that way. So it's nothing unusual to have a girl and a boy who are um, different from that point of view. Is that clear? Very good, very good. Uh, Now you say that uh, love and sex are not interdependent. Now obviously there's the uh, the natural drive, the natural attraction, uh, but explain that a little bit more. Well, um, in the, you've got to go back really with religion because religion's been the whole problem all the way along. Because initially, of course, uh, religion was um, set out to control sex because of sex, sex problems like in, infection and genetics and that sort of thing. And so they, uh, the, all the religions produced the same sort of rules and regulations. And uh, unfortunately, uh, now we have progressed from there. We no longer worry about infection and uh, uh, unwanted pregnancy and that sort of thing because we, we have other means of, of prevention. So consequently, uh, sex can be a true recreation and we can live and practice sex purely for the delight it offers. But this doesn't mean to say you've got to be in love. That was uh, introduced all two and a half millennia ago by the various religions in order to keep people good you know and they said look you, you, you've, got, you've got to um, be in love before you can have decent sex well of course this is completely wrong I, I, it's a funny thing my mother who was um, very orthodox herself I remember her saying to me you know Philip she said you can have perfect, <clears throat> perfect love without any sex and you can also have perfect sex without any love. 
And I think this is um, this is one thing that a lot of people don't realize. And uh, it's, um, so consequently, uh, multiple partners and that sort of thing to the numerality don't sound, it doesn't sound so terrible as it does to somebody who was brought up traditionally like myself. So your book, exactly. this story, this obviously this very uh, deep emotional uh, story of Bill and Elizabeth, it's in their dialogue and, and their interaction is to help people kind of work through this theme that you're you're establishing. That's it. Yes, you've got it in the nutshell there, and uh, I think that's that's really what is uh, what it works up to and what it's all about. And uh, there are several uh, conversations that they have in which she puts her side very eloquently. And she points out to him that uh, she has the advantage because she's heard all the arguments that he'll produce uh, many years before, uh, whereas he's never heard any of her arguments from her side. You know, it's a new thing to him. And uh, consequently, it's much more difficult for him to uh, come to a rational decision uh, because he, he has to adjust much more. That um, in the end, of course, he does adjust, and the, uh, she eventually accepts him, and that, that that's it. They uh, they agree to to live in her ways rather than live in the, uh, the ways of his um, traditional ancestors. You know. How, how have you done representing representing the women's point of view? How, have you learned? Have you gotten critiques on that yet? <laughs> Critiques on the women's point of view. I no, I haven't. From Elizabeth, haven't from Elizabeth's point of view, to get other other um, opinions <laughs> on it, uh, I, I just sort of, um, I just went to print, you know. <laughs> so how did you establish thought, Elizabeth's point of view? Uh, you know, being a man, how did you uh, become the authority there? Oh, I, I have met, I have met ladies who are like Elizabeth. Yes. I've met I've met ladies who espoused that particular point. In fact, even when I, as far back as when I was first an undergraduate, and that's what sixty odd years ago, uh, I um, uh, I met a couple who were living exactly like um, uh, one would expect that um, Elizabeth and uh, Bill eventually live. You know, uh, and accepting each other as such and uh, accepting sex as a true recreation. And uh, after all, let's face it, who plays, uh, who plays tennis with the same partner all the time or um, uh, uh, plays golf with the same partner or, or cards or anything like that? Uh, no, it, sex is a true recreation. You can have good sex with anybody, provided certain rules are kept. And you have just as strict a morality that side as you do on the other side, because you can't have people running around developing infections and, and unwanted pregnancies and that sort of thing if you're going to allow a complete freedom of sex life. You've got to have a lot of reg- you've got to have some regulations, and this is where the interesting point comes in. I think that there, there is a morality, but it is a different morality. It's not it's not the same. It's it's on a different plane. If you see what I mean. The title of the book: The Moral Dilemma. The author: Diamond Fothgar. Diamond, tell us how to get your book. 
Well, <laughs> I'm hoping the book will, will will reach the bookshelves of most of the uh, people who sell books, you know. But uh, and uh, the the Amazon and uh, I see that Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble and people have already been contacted. So I'm hopeful. Uh, the um, and you can also buy the book direct from Author House itself. You see, Author House is a self-publishing firm, as you probably know. Uh, they let you, uh, they let the author publish uh, under certain guidelines, and uh, they set down the rules, and you keep keep to them, and that's all there is to it. And then they handle the um, uh, the marketing of the book for you, providing you're prepared to pay for it. You know. And this is what's happened with me. I've, I've decided that uh, this book was worth uh, pushing. And so I've asked Author House, and that's how they've come and put me in touch with people like you. <laughs> well, enjoy talking to you, Diamond. Thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you very much for your help and uh, for your interest in the book, because I think you'll find that it has quite a big market because a lot of people have never given this much thought before, and they will now start to think seriously about where they're really going in this problem. Okay? Very good. That was Diamond Fothgard. He is the author of his book, The Moral Dilemma.